We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organized chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's notion.com slash squared. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today, we're joined by Adrian Wooldridge, author of the new book, The Aristocracy of Talent. And in conversation with Mark Mardell, they discussed how the idea that people should be advanced in society based on their talents rather than their status or birth came to be one of the leading ideologies across the world. It's a really fascinating conversation which deals with questions about why meritocracy is under attack today. And if you do enjoy it and want to continue the conversation with fellow listeners after the episode, we'll be running a chat forum about meritocracy on the new app Multitude. Just click the link in our podcast description. We'll be taking some of the best arguments and comments from our listeners on the issue of meritocracy and giving them two free tickets to one of our upcoming in-person debates in London or free access to the live stream if they're joining us from outside the UK. You can find a link for the chat forum and Adrian's book in the podcast description. But now let's go to the episode. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Mark Mardell. I'm delighted to introduce our guest today, Adrian Woolridge, the economist political editor who writes the magazine's Badget column. He's the author of 11 books, the latest being The Aristocracy of Talent, How Meritocracy Made the Modern World. Welcome, Adrian. Thank you for having me. And this book isn't just a history, it's a critique of the way in which meritocracy is now under assault. The last part's entitled The Crisis of the Meritocracy. But first, uh, I would like to know, why did you want to write this book? Yeah, I would call it a history with attitude, really, or a history with benefits. I wrote the book because I came to two conclusions. One is that meritocracy is absolutely vital to the creation of the modern world. It's as fundamental as democracy or capitalism. And secondly, that it's under assault from all sorts of directions, partly from its own internal contradictions or or, or failures to live up to its promise. And that that um, assault, if it leads to the unwinding or collapse of meritocracy in some form, will be a really fundamental problem for the health and productivity of our civilization. And I want to look at all of that in some detail, but Where did the idea come from? I mean, I tend to think of it as an Enlightenment idea, but you say it has seeds in Plato and indeed in China. Absolutely. I mean, the notion of merit, of meritocracy, is the idea that people should be judged on the basis of their individual abilities 
rather than their position in the social hierarchy or their family connections. And that's something which is, seems very obvious to us. But for most of history, it hasn't been at all obvious. For most of history, indeed, society has been organized on the basis of inheritance of positions, on the basis of uh, family connections, on the basis of a strict and inherited hierarchy. But there are two areas where meritocracy really um, originates and, begin, uh, and begins to undermine uh, inherited society. One is Plato, The Republic, an extraordinary and brilliant book. So, so Plato's Republic presents a, a brilliant and extremely radical view of society in which social positions are determined by people's intellectual ability. He says there are three classes, men of gold, men of silver, and men of bronze. And your position in that hierarchy is determined by your abilities. And society must constantly sift through the entire population in order to find these men of gold. Plato's book is, of course, a book. It's a blueprint. It's a vision. But it does have considerable impact. The uh, During the Renaissance, people read it. Uh, during the 19th century in England, people read it. And it did sort of help to infuse the meritocratic spirit. But also, on a much bigger and more practical level, the Chinese state from the early Middle Ages onwards begins to begins to select people on the basis of examinations, this sort of Confucian elite, this this civil service that governed China for, for, for centuries and, and centuries from really the early Middle Ages to 1905 is selected on the basis of its performance in examinations. And, you know, at the time when the, the countries like Britain were ruled by people with names like Eric Bloodaxe, China was ruled by, by sort of Confucian scholars who'd passed very sophisticated examinations. And it's a sort of golden thread that runs through your book, the idea of examination, testing, and of course, education. Absolutely. Examinations, are, to, to, to most of us, they seem like incredibly boring and tedious things and things that we had to live through at school and at university. But in fact, they're very radical and revolutionary mechanisms because they mean that uh, if in the way that they were used, certainly in China and later in the, in the West, they meant that opportunities were conditional upon your performance in an examination rather than physical tests or just rather than, you know, your, 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 your father tipping the wing to somebody that you were a good person. And examinations have a very interesting history. They're used uh, by the Chinese, first of all. They're used uh, by the Jesuits. The Jesuits are great uh, examiners. And through the Chinese use written examinations in the Middle Ages and early modern period in, in, in Europe, they tended to be viva voce examinations. You tended to be interrogated by your examiner. Written examinations come in in the, the West really in the 19th century. And they're now, of course, you know, pretty much universal. The interview is much, much less important than your performance on written papers. One of the things that struck me in reading this was that although we're talking about an established hierarchy in Europe in the medieval and later periods, that everybody should know their place, presumably we are talking about meritocracy as a rule by merit rather than, I mean, presumably even kings didn't want people who made wonky tables or cooked horrible food. There was presumably with, with uh, what were considered lower caste, lower class jobs, there was a sort of a recognition of merit. But there are two, there are ideas at tension with each other here in the Middle Ages. One is the idea that you should inherit your position and that your bloodline is all that really matters. So James VI of Scotland uh, became King of Scotland at the age of, I think, 13 months, when I think he was probably not really capable of making uh, rational kingly decisions. There was also a sense that lots of jobs were given on the basis of royal patronage and royal whim, or even bought and sold. So I came across an example in 1783 
of um, a wet nurse who was being paid £200 a year at the time, which is a lot of money to be paid. It's particularly a lot of money if you consider the fact that the person who she was wet nursing, supposedly wet nursing the Prince of Wales, was 21 years old at the time. So there's a lot of, you know, but on the other hand, of course, you do basically have to have a certain number of people who are doing the work of the world and who are judged on competence. And you get some very interesting examples of this. One is Samuel Pepys, who was given his job in the Admiralty really on the basis of family connections and actually became becomes one of the great sort of administrators of his time or indeed of any time is incredibly good uh, at his job so there were there were competent people the problem is that for every competent person there were probably two or three incompetent people and you point out the peeps said that he was better at his job because he didn't know anything about it, so he had to try extra hard or something like that. Well, first of all, he said that he didn't know anything about it, so he sort of had a fresh view. But he didn't want to disappoint his patron. He didn't want to bring shame on his patron. So he worked extra hard to make sure that he was actually quite quite good and competent. Although one of his complaints was that very, very frequently, the people he had to go and see, um, the lords and ladies, well, the lords actually, who were making the great decisions, were never there because they were away, they were either lying in bed, sleeping off their hangovers, or they were out hunting. So it was a very inefficient society by, by, by our standards. But there were, of course, people who kept things going. And indeed, many kings, I mean, I talked about James VI, but let's say Philip II of Spain uh, was a ferocious worker. He worked, you know, 12, 14, 15 hours every every single day. Uh, so there was a lot, there was also mixed in with this sort of aristocratic attitude of not working hard, not really caring about competence, a lot of people who, who had the opposite mentality. And perhaps there was a growing need. I mean, one of the things that I thought was really interesting, what you were saying about the French Revolution, was it came at a time not just when the Enlightenment philosophy was behind the idea of merit, but also the state's needs were becoming more complex and you needed competent people there. Absolutely. One of the things that happens and one of the driving forces which leads to the, the rise of the meritocracy from the early Middle Ages onwards is that the state needs competent people, competent bureaucrats and competent um, soldiers and uh, the bureaucracy becomes more com complicated the demands of warfare become more intellectually sophisticated and so you have these people who are very very frequently captured from the bottom of society and given very very privileged or, or prominent roles so in this country we have uh, Thomas Woolsey, who's then, you know, succeeded by his his own uh, protégé, who's Thomas Cromwell, who's been written about brilliantly by Hilary Mantel, but who comes from a very uh, modest position in society and rules the country until Henry decides that he doesn't want him to rule the country anymore and chops his head off. Apart from the attack on the new idea of meritocracy from the privileged by saying these people were not gentlemen or ladies or whatever and therefore didn't need their shouldn't didn't deserve their position was there any sort of intellectual pushback about it, against it well it's a very strong and sophisticated intellectual pushback which has been elaborated uh, in recent years and that is that the people who rise from the bottom and get to the top tend to be not just pushy people but people who put their own selves and their own interests above the rest of society so they're sort of disruptive forces but they're disruptive forces who tend to be egotists so a lot of people I think uh, Burke would be Edmund Burke would be one of those, those 
those people who say, well, the old society was a society of chivalry, but it was also a society of reciprocal obligations. And when you get a society organized entirely around atomized egotists, such as, the, you know, a capitalist or a meritocratic society, you lose something in that pro- process. Society becomes, as it were, all elbows. Everybody's trying to elbow each other out of the way. And that notion that community is being destroyed by an avaricious individualistic society is a very powerful critique of meritocracy, you know, right the way down to our, to our own time. It's being revived quite powerfully at our own time. And you seem to believe that the flowering of meritocracy, and I am romping through the history rather here, but was after the Second World War, the history of the, the history boy generation, the grammar school boy generation, coming with the Labour government. I think that was the great moment of, it was, I call it the meritocratic moment, because it combined a notion that we should be looking for merit wherever it occurs in society. So we should be making sure that obscure, the mute Miltons, as it were, from obscure parts of the country are given opportunities with a notion that the old ruling class, um, that people who've been, been squatting at the top of society for many, many centuries should be, should be removed from that. So it's a sort of socialist idea, but it's a socialism that believes in equality of opportunity rather than in equality of results. And two things happen after this sort of meritocratic moment in, in, in history. One is that the left begins to abandon equality of opportunity in favour of equality of results. It wants much, much, uh, much less steep hierarchies, as it were. And the second is the notion of merit on the right is captured by the idea of the market. It's really the market that prov- provides meritocratic outcomes. And if those meritocratic outcomes mean that some people get filthy rich and pass those riches on to their children, then then so much the the, the, the better. So, so I really think that the era after the Second World War was an era in which this idea that merit is a, is a socially left-wing, levelling idea when it comes to people who don't deserve positions, but also something that raises up people from the bottom to the top, really has its uh, an extraordinary flowering. The history generation is exactly right. And what sort of society did it create or did it begin to create? Well, it began, it began to create a, a meritocratic society in the sense that not only was there a very significant degree of social mobility, higher social mobility than we have now, in which a whole generation of people had opportunities which their parents never even dreamed of, but it also created a different ruling class. And one of the things about meritocracy is not just that you should have a high degree of social mobility from the top to the bottom, but also that the, the, the ruling class should be different. It should be a ruling class defined not by gentlemanly amateurishness, but by professionalism and uh, a commitment to science and technology and rational economic progress. So it created, you know, as Wilson called it the white heat of technology and he contrasted himself as a grammar school boy who knew all, all about numbers and slide rules and the rest of it with with, with uh, Alec Douglas Hume who went, you know, knew about tweed, <laughs> tweed, tweed, tweed jackets and shooting grouse on the grouse moor and things like that. So that was that was a society in which you had all of the elements of merit, both in terms of social mobility and in terms of a commitment to a different sort of productive, economically efficient, technocratic society. But there's also a criticism from the left or from the socialists that it co-opted the brightest and best. Not everybody thought this was positive. You no longer got the, well, maybe I'm talking about later, but you no longer got the minor studying marks by candlelight who becomes a, a Labour leader. It's gone beyond that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the most power, the term. 
The book that gave meritocracy its name was a book by Michael Young called The Rise of the Meritocracy, published in 1958. And Young used this term not as a term of praise, but as a term of criticism. And he said that the problem with meritocracy is, uh, well, let's, let me say there are many, many problems, but let's, let's name three. One is that it creates a society that's all competition. Everybody's trying to elbow each other out of the way in order to get to the front. And he says that's absolutely the opposite of what socialists should want. The second is that it creates a feeling of terrible despair in people who don't succeed in that society. Because if you don't succeed in an aristocratic society, you can say to yourself, well, that's just because the aristocrats nabbed all the good jobs and I was ignored at the bottom. But if, if you have lots of opportunities, the only person you can blame is yourself. And so it, it means that the, 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 the price of defeat is even more bitter. And thirdly, I think what it does is to take the brightest people from the working class and sort of hijack them or, you know, hitch, yes, hijack them, take them hostage. And one example would be Ernie Bevin. Ernie Bevin came from, left school at 13, 14, and went on to become one of the giants of the, the labor movement because he was such a brilliant man, such a great organizer, such an extraordinary figure. And what Michael Young was worried about is that future Ernie Bevins would be spotted very young and co-opted by the, the upper classes and the, and the labor movement would, left, would be left with nobody but a bunch of sort of Arthur Scargill style, you know, thick-headed rabble-rousers. And maybe it has been left with nobody except uh, not, not rabble-rousers so much as uh, polytechnic teachers. Yeah, quite indeed. Maybe it has. Well, what do you think about the idea that merit doesn't deserve higher reward any more than birth? It's just an accident and it's quality of outcome that matters. Yeah, that's, I think that's a, a, a philosophically respectable and in some ways profound objection because, you know, we inherit, I certainly think we inherit many of our intellectual abilities and we don't in that sense deserve them. If you're born bright, if you're born intellectually able, then that's good luck. But I think the problem with that argument is it, is it presumes that effort is of no importance whatsoever. Michael Young said uh, merit equals IQ plus effort. And I think effort is an, an incredibly important part of what merit means. And I think it's very hard to get people to to put in the hours, to do the work, to, you know, to, to stay up studying, to, you know, rather than watching the television or lying around drinking beer or whatever what we'd prefer to be doing. So you need some sort of sense of um, reward for effort. So I think that it's not just something that you're lucky enough to have. It's something that you must also cultivate. Talents are things that need to be cultivated and worked on. And, you know, there may be a few people like Mozart who have such extraordinary talents that they're almost, you know, almost superhuman to, to us. But even, even the young Mozart had to do a certain amount of practicing when he'd probably been prefer, preferred to have been playing with his spinning top or whatever, whatever they had in those days. As you say, the criticism from the left is also that it co-opts people, that it, and it isn't really a meritocracy. It doesn't really promote merit, but filters people through a channel. And I think the central attack in your book or central criticism in your book that you examined very interestingly is what you call a bastard meritocracy, meritocracy marinated in money. Can you spell that out more? Sure. I mean, in, 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 there are a bunch of medieval historians 
who talked about feudalism and then they say feudalism degenerated in certain in certain ways so they invented the term bastard feudalism to describe the 14th and 15th centuries and i think we're beginning to see that now is a sort of bastard bastard version of, of meritocracy and that is essentially because the notion of merit has been corrupted by a number of other forces the most important of them is money that people who have a lot of money can buy privileges, a privileged education for their children. And one of the most extraordinary things that we've seen in recent years is not only that you have meritocrats themselves making sure that they perpetuate their position by buying good educations for their children, sending them to good comprehensives in, in, in leafy suburbs or to private schools, but also old money has started investing in education as well. It used to be the case back, I think, in the 1960s that a school like Eton you know, didn't really focus that much except for a few exceptional students on high level education. Now it's a merit factory. It's concerned with, you know, everybody doing really well at school and getting into the best universities. Uh, secondly, I think you, you have this process, process of what, 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 what scientists call assortative mating, whereas educationally successful people marry other educationally successful people and then invest very heavily in their children. That reinforces this caste-like aspect of, of, of meritocracy. And thirdly, I think what we have now is the sort of the globalization of the elite with the rise of the sort of the Davos class. And a lot of what merit, the original meritocracy was about was creating a ladder of opportunity from the local village school right the way to the Oxford and Whitehall and the top of society. Now you have to create a much longer ladder because so many of the most powerful people in the world work for global companies, global organizations, the World Bank, the IMF, and the rest of it. And they meet, meet each other in Davos and Bilderberg and such organizations. Now, so the, the global elite is more divorced from the rest of society and the ladder has got more and more and more rungs missing because public, public education is not as, as good as it should be and in some ways not as good as it, as it used to be. So in all sorts of ways, we've seen the corruption of meritocracy by money, family connections, global networks. And as a result of that, a slowing down of social mobility. So just as in, in the years in the 19, late 40s, 50s and 60s, you had this flourishing of social mobility, large, large numbers of people coming from, you know, uneducated backgrounds to getting the best education available. Now that process has slowed, particularly in the United States, but also in Great Britain. And more and more you're seeing society calcified rather than mobile. That ladder has become a drawbridge in that it excludes some people from the ability to Absolutely. Yeah. And so a lot of people at the bottom of society, I think, because they no longer see an opportunity to get ahead, are turning against the whole the whole of society. This is particularly serious in the United States because the United States was built on the, the American, as you know uh, perfectly well, is built on the American dream, the idea that your children would do better than you did. And that is no longer a widely shared belief. More and more people are thinking, no, my children are going to do worse than I did. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. 
and you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over 600 each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply I just want to go a bit deeper into the, I mean, this is, uh, what is it, assortative mating? An interesting idea that you, if you marry somebody from your say, own, own class, you double your advantage for your children, as it were. Yeah, assortative mating is a sort of technical and rather impolite way of saying like people tend to marry like people, people like themselves. It used to be the case that you probably wouldn't meet somebody exactly like yourself. If you were a company director, you might well, if you were a company man, company manager, senior manager, you might well meet your secretary and marry your secretary, somebody who didn't have the same educational background or indeed earning power as you did. Now, increasingly, people who have graduate, graduate educations marry people who have graduate educations. And the, the earning power of a graduate plus another graduate is much, much greater than the earning power of a, let's say, a supermarket shelf stacker and another supermarket shelf stacker. So the more that people of the same economic status marry each other, the more functional day-to-day inequality uh, will, will, will increase. So we like to think that you know, society is being distorted by the arrival of this new class of billionaires, which indeed it is. But just even more important from a day-to-day point of view is this process of, of, of educated people marrying educated people. And that creates, you know, everyday inequality, which, uh, which, which, you know, we see all around us. And that, you know, that is a consequence of a very good thing. It's a consequence of women flooding into the, into the universities and into the, into the labor market. But it's having consequence for the whole of society, which is massively to increase, um, inequality. I was struck by one particular statistic by the year, age of four, somebody with professional class parents knows 45 or hears 45 million words compared to 13 million on welfare. 
And absolutely. And that just shows you how deeply rooted a lot of these inequalities are, because we like to think, you know, that we want to provide a equality of opportunity. And we like to think that we can do that by spending more money, providing nursery education, the rest of it. But actually, if you know that one of the most basic things that determines your long term cognitive ability is how many words you hear from your your parents and, you know, uh, parents who are educated and married will speak a lot more uh, words to their children than people who are at the bottom of, of, of society. So that just shows you how uh, how deep, deeply rooted this self-replication of meritocratic or quasi-meritocratic hierarchies are. And what's happened to the universities? They rely very much more on money, on educating the elite. Yeah, well, what, what's happened people. is that two things, really. One is that the elite particularly the moneyed elite, puts much more value on universities. So it devotes a lot more of its resources uh, to getting their, their children into, into universities. And the second is that, particularly in the United States, uh, universities are massive money machines. They, you know, they're incredibly expensive. They're obsessed by having the best facilities, the best gyms, uh, the best new science buildings. And because of that, they, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't go so far as to say they sell places to particular students, but they go the next, they do the next best thing. And people who give a lot of money to, to universities, build a, build a, a science block or the rest of it have a very significantly greater chance of getting their children into those universities than, 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 than other parents. So money is pervading the whole process of meritocratic selection and distorting it in very, very worrying and deleterious ways. And of course, this creates dynasties. I mean, I suppose Trump's nepotism was crude, but there's plenty of dynasties around, political and otherwise. I mean, there's an extraordinary number of, of, of dynasties. I think, that, that, again, I keep coming back to this point, but I, I think it is true that the United States is uh, a great offender here. You have, obviously, the, the, the Clinton dynasty. You have the Cuomos and um, you have the Bushes. Uh, the Bushes managed to be an old-fashioned dynasty that's, uh, dynasty that's now turned itself into a sort of new-fashioned dynasty in that it's moved south, but it hasn't lost its capacity to get its children into, into the right universities and into the right... Uh, you seize the right opportunities to have political careers. Uh, and I think Jeb Bush's son is particularly likely to go quite a long way in politics. I think he's now already in the Texan administration in some significant way. What is the populist backlash about? I mean, is that saying merit doesn't work or it doesn't work for us? I mean, is it actually an assault on merit or on the idea of the rule of those who have merit? Or is it something else? Well, I think there are two populist backlashes. There's the populist backlash that, that comes from the left, which claims that meritocracy is just an excuse for class privilege and that the roots of that class privilege lie in different different levels of economic opportunity and merit is just a way of sort of reifying that. And then there is a growing and more recent backlash from the from the from the right. Uh, which would associate with Trump and also, I think, with Brexit, which says that what you've got is this terribly self-satisfied cognitive elite, people who went to universities, uh, people who do professional jobs, who look down on the rest of society. But if you look, listen to the populists, they're full of this idea that they're looked down on by these elites, but also who haven't made a very good job of running running the world. You know, we've had a massive financial crisis. We had a disastrous Iraq war. All of these things were brought to us by various intellectual elites. So the populists say, say they're not very nice. 
They're a bunch of snobs, and they're also useless at what they're doing. And yet, they manage to protect themselves from the, the you know, the consequences of these things, uh, of these bad decisions. And you, you, you would point to, I would point to Brexit as one uh, movement that was very much driven by a populist uh, right-wing backlash against these cognitive elites. And Trump, another one, uh, as another one, Trump even said, you know, in, in his very Trumpian way to, to, to a crowd, "I love the poorly educated." You know, he was a sort of hillbilly billionaire. You know, he he didn't read books or anything like that. He he prided himself on his sort of on 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 his lack of intellectual sophistication. Although he, strangely enough, he he insisted that he was incredibly smart, but not smart in the way that those sort of eggheads were smart. He didn't need to read books to know that he did, did come to the right decisions. A very stable genius. But there has long been in American culture a sort of anti-intellectualism, hasn't there? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's very much a sort of Jacksonian. Tradition. Tradition, you know, going back to saying that you know these these people like um, the Adamses were intellectuals, they were eggheads, and the the, it's the, the, the true people are the, the sort of people who rely on business acumen and common sense. And there's also an an attitude, an objection to elitism in America. So I remember reading Max Weber talking about America, and he said Americans would rather have a collection of bureaucrats who are useless at their job and sort of physically stunted so they could could despise and spit on them rather than having bureaucrats who would look down and spit on them. They'd rather be able to look down. They'd rather incompetence that they could despise than competence that would make them feel, feel small. So that is a very, it is a very long-term and powerful tradition in the United States. But it's really, well, what we've had in the United States is the rise of this sort of cognitive educated elite obsessed with the universities, which in some ways is, you know, a, a new thing, you know, to have it on the scale that you've got it at the moment, plus this long-term Jacksonian resentment of, of, of these snobs. So America, America is, you know, in many ways, is the, the, the sort of nexus of this great conflict between the the, the, the cognitive elite and the, and, and the populists. And I must say that neither side is very attractive. And what would your solutions be? Uh, you seem to be, if not a fan at least, give more credence to, well, the 11 plus and IQ tests than many other people would. Absolutely. What I would say is that meritocracy, the forces pushing against meritocracy are very, very powerful forces. One of them is human nature itself, that we tend to want the best for our children and we want to fix the system for our children so they'll do they will do as well as they possibly can and better than other people's children in many ways that's part of our nature and it's something that's that's um you know we may say that we support meritocracy in theory but it, we, we you know it's an other denying ordinance that that, that that will stop others from looking after their children but we'll try and fix this as ourselves you can't get away from that so i think there's a powerful force against meritocracy there and there's also now because we have this process whereby the, the rich are so obsessed by getting their children into the best schools and universities and are so willing to make big financial commitments to that and the fact that they marry each other and, in, you know, produce children who, who are privileged from, from birth in terms of the number of words they hear and the rest of it, that we need to try very, very hard to break the connection between your birth and where you end up in society. So it's not enough just to just just to do a, a few small things. You have to do 
you have to push hard. And I think to push hard, you need to do several things. One is to use objective tests, SATs, tests that measure as much as we possibly can brain power rather than acquired skills. And you have to use them early and you have to use them frequently in order to find the best talent. Uh, and secondly, you have to have um, selection quite early on because it's only if you take the very best people and put them in the very best or academically fo- most academically focused schools that you'll break you'll, 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 you'll give them the same advantages that very rich people naturally have so I say select uh, early use IQ tests I'm not advocating a return to the 11 plus but I'm, I'm, I'm advocating a return to a much more differentiated system with lots and lots of different academic schools or different schools of various kinds, but certainly with an academic stream. And I would say absolutely that, you know, we have these so-called public schools in, in Britain, which are private, you know, it's private schools, which cost an enormous amount of money. Eden's fees now are £48,000 a year. These schools were founded in order to educate poor children for, you know, for the, for the benefit of the state and the church, Winchester. Which is why they're confusingly for Americans called public schools. Absolutely, absolutely. The same, uh, the Eton, particularly the King Scholars, was supposed to supposed to be poor. St Paul's, all of these schools, Marlborough, and the rest of them. Now they've been taken over by the by financiers and their children, and by, by the global mega rich. I think a third of uh, students at these schools are, are, are foreign born, and yet they have charitable status. You know, we're we're using charitable status to subsidise the, 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 the you know a very privileged global oligarchy, and I think in order to preserve their financial status they should give at least half of their places away to what they were originally designed to to, to, to do which is able poor children i would say selected you know by by, by pretty rigorous uh, objective objective tests but i think that meritocracy is something that you have to fight for and you have to keep fighting for and what we've seen now is a sort of silting up of the process and um, that silting up threatens the legitimacy of the entire system. How likely, how possible is it it could change? You're the Economist political editor. I mean, the atmosphere is not there at the moment, is it? Well, it's not quite there. I would say that uh, that's right. And I would say that we have a number of problems. One, as I say, human nature pushes against this. Secondly, that the left in this country is committed much more to equality of outcome than to equality of opportunity. It's very different from the left of the 1940s. And thirdly, that the, the Conservative Party is, you know, not going to really, I think, go to war with, let's say, the landed aristocracy, which owns about half the country or more than half the country, and big chunks of London, which I think is exceptionally unmeritocratic. But the Tory party is not going to go to war with those people. Nevertheless, there are some good signs. Look at the academy schools, which were created under Tony Blair. They did a lot to improve social mobility and provide opportunities for for less able children. Look at the London Challenge, again, produced by Tony Blair. That had very, very positive results about educational outcomes in London. So I think it's not impossible to do this, but we need to go in a, in, in a different direction. We need to go back to 1945 back to that spirit of 1945 and say, instead, imagine in, in, 1940, in 1945, if we'd not got rid of the grammar schools, I mean, in, in the 1960s, not gone on to, to get rid of the grammar schools, but instead uh, uh, incorporated the public schools into the state school system and forced them to take scholarship boys and girls in, in, in large numbers. We'd have a very, very different country. We wouldn't have prime ministers who, who 
came from Eton, followed by followed by Eton because they could pay pay the fees. We'd have a new class of super grammar schools and super grammar school boys and girls who would really be driving productivity in this in the in this country. Is there any any merit? I was going to say in the argument that you need to recognise different sorts of merit. And I mean, it's almost a cliche to praise Germany for having technical and engineering schools. Well, it's a cliche to praise Germany, but it's a, it's a justified cliche. I think one of the pro- problems that we have in this country is that we uh, are obsessed with one dimension of talent, which is academic talents, uh, university-educated talents. And we've had a vast expansion of universities, very expensive expansion of universities, with everybody being funneled into the same sort of academic I- institutions. I think... Educated academic intelligence matters enormously. I think it creates a lot of the biggest productivity gains at the moment are being made by people who do have academic intelligence in the IT industry. But there are also lots and lots of other sorts of uh, of talent. I think John Adams, it was, who said that I study war and politics so that my children can study philosophy and mathematics so that their children can study you know, art and sculpture and porcelain and tapestry, mm. tapestry work and things like that. And I think as society becomes more sophisticated, we should be able to support more and more talents. But also we do need people with vocational skills. We need to put more emphasis on on further education, vocational education. And it's interesting that the big backlash against meritocracy has come in the United States and Britain, which have been over-obsessed by universities, haven't come so much in Germany, where I think this capacity to recognize vocational skills and and feed people into these middle-stand, mid-sized, practical engineering companies and the rest of it has served that country extremely well, not just because it's productive, but it finds an outlet for all sorts of different sorts of skills. Finally, we're coming to realize, perhaps rather slowly, that democracy may be very seriously under attack, that it may not in some senses last as a system is being questioned. Is the same true of meritocracy? Is it here to stay, whatever, or could it fade away? Oh, the battle for meritocracy is never won. I think it can easily fade away. I think it has faded away because of its own corruption, as I say, because it's been captured by an elite which is self-perpetuating. I think the revolt against meritocracy is very, very serious at the moment, particularly again in the United States. For example, in San Francisco, they have a school called Lowell School, which is one of the most successful schools in the country, provided mainly immigrants, generation upon generation, with opportunities to go to Berkeley and Stanford and Ivy League schools. That school has just been prevented from selecting people on the basis of test scores and told that it has to select people on the basis of a lottery which I think is a disaster. And once you destroy these elite institutions, it's very, very hard to to rebuild them. Again, universities across the country are making less and less use of SATs and more and more use of holistic assessments, essays and, 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 and teacher recommendations and things like that, which I think, again, privileges privileged people and makes it harder for, for, for people from the bottom of society to get the due recognition for their intellectual abilities. So I think you're both getting the destruction of selection, uh, of selection mechanisms and the sort of softening of the selection mechanism. So I think meritocracy can be destroyed. And I, ha- I end my book with the example of Venice. Venice was the most 
thriving of city in Europe in the Middle Ages, primarily because it was open to talent, far more open to talent than any other uh, city. It had a doge, it had a council that selected people uh, from a broad range of society on a regular basis. And then in the late Middle Ages, it suddenly decided that it wouldn't select any more people that only the ruling families would keep those jobs and they would be able to pass them on to their children and then to their children, La, la, la Serieta, I think it was called, the, the severance. Um, and it went downhill from then onwards. It just kept going downhill. So we have plenty of examples in history of times when open societies have become closed and the result has always been discontent, decline and irrelevance. And I'm very worried that we're doing that to the West at the moment. It's exactly the time that China is making more and more use of meritocratic mechanisms in order to produce, in order to boost its productivity. A grim warning from history. Adrian, thanks for a fascinating conversation. I'm Mark Model, and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared.